morning. Doesn't have to be Phil, but it is Phil, and it is the morning. Metaphorically, it's morning in America, or at least in the bunker. I'm sorry about last time. I was just, I felt a bit, the whole, the whole radio show has been suffering a bit lately. CD has gotten really weird. None of it is the same as before. Something new, it's, it's still pretty horrible, but like beautiful horrible. There's a French term, joyelette, that means ugly beautiful. Like certain actresses or models, they straddle this line. That's, that's your name, CD. You're joyelette. Do your thing, show everyone what you are now. See, I think it's still morphing. I'm not sure what it'll hatch or finish or whatever. Again, I want to apologize for my lack of radio formatting. Also, I talked about the ancient Greeks too much. I need to branch out, like the world tree. There you go. Norse, that's something, though Norse mythology was always the JV mythology. It was never as big as those depressing art-needing Greeks. Well, there was Thor in the comics, but Odin. Odin was interesting. He traded his right eye for knowledge and he gave poetry to the world. It's a weird story, the poetry one. There was a whole display about it in a museum in Iceland. Ginny was doing a thing in Iceland and there was this like diorama of Norse myths at the museum. The museum was right by the hotel and while she was at the conference, I would go every day because I got in free with the conference pass and everything else in Iceland was like super expensive. Lonely by yourself. I just kept going back and reading the myths and looking at the little cutouts. Odin. Odin. Odin and his poetry. Let's do this. So, there was the first poet. I don't know his name, but he was made by the gods. But then some dwarves bled him to death and made a mead out of his blood. And somehow a giant got the blood mead of poetry. The giant took it to his house and kept it in some barrels. Then Odin was like, hey, I want that. Because, you know, white god privilege. Also because the mead filled you with artistic talent. Odin heads to the giant's house. The giant is away doing giant things, but he had his daughter guard the mead because giants. I think he also put a spell on her to make her ugly or something. Uh, that might be a different thing. Anyway, Odin being a god and seeing that a woman is guarding what he wants, he does the typical god thing. He seduces her. Classic. He says, I'll sleep with you for three nights, but... All this sex is going to tire me out, so I'll need three sips of that awesome honey wine your dad has. She's like, oh, I don't know, but she's also been alone in this house for a long time, so just three sips? Just three sips, no big deal. Nature takes its course, intercourse in this case. Odin sleeps with the giantess, and then he's like, I'm going to get my three sips. So, he sees the wine as being stored in these three giant barrels. Since he's a god, he takes a sip, which completely drains the barrel, and so he drinks up all the wine and stores the drink in his cheeks, because gods are doing it for themselves. The giantess is like, oh, that's no good. Then I forget how exactly, but her father comes back and is like, what's going on here? He sees Odin with his mouth full of wine and is like, Oh, you did not do that. Also, you slept with my daughter, but that's fine because she has control and agency over her own body. Anyway, the giant goes after Odin. Odin transforms into a giant bird, which again is pretty classic polytheistic god behavior. Zeus was always transforming into things too. I guess it's just a god power. I guess 
the Judeo-Christian God turns into that burning bush, or at least spoke through it, then he turned into his own son or something, that gets a little more. And the Holy Spirit, that's a whole... Anyway, <laughs> anyway, Odin transforms into a bird and the giant is chasing after him. He heads back to where the gods are hanging out. The gods see Odin and they figure out that he has the meat of poetry because gods, I guess. They set out a big bowl. The giant is closing in, but Odin gets away and spits the mead into the big container that God set out. The giant was like, darn, 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 probably threw down his hat and jumped up and down on it all angry. After that, Odin had the power of poetry, and when there was a great poet, he gave them a drink from the mead, and that inspired them and supercharged their talent, which is nice, even if they are drinking really old blood backwash for inspiration. But there's an addendum. When he was flying away from the giant, there was a moment when the giant got really close and made a grab for Odin, and Odin got scared, and he, well, he pissed himself a little. Like, three drops of piss, and that piss fell to earth, and that's what creates bad poetry. That's why not all writing is good. The good writing is from the mead, and the bad poetry is from the piss. That's me. I have to take my piss-poor talents and try to tell you about my son. I've hit him a long time. I didn't tell you about him because, well, as honest as we get, we're never fully there. Even in the beginning, when I do these hop on the radio after waking up and tell you my dreams sessions, glad I put a moratorium on that. I started, I had a whole idea, a whole sense, rules, format, sponsors, Garfield. It was a way to hide, to pull back when I needed an escape hatch, but this is me. This is Bunker Phil Etrog. He's not the person who was married to Jenny, father of Beckett. We are defined so much by our situations. The Phil Etrog who liked to sit at Starbucks and drink cold brew is... That whole person died with them because shrugging off all of our lives, peeling away to what? Truth? A core? Another set of armor? Why is the center the truth? Why can't the outside be the truth? Crust is just as real as the bread. The crust is the bread. What am I anyway without them? Without you? Without... Beckett Lulav Etrog was six years old when he died. Plague moves quickly, which might be a blessing, or at least... Blessing. No, not a... Not a fucking blessing. Yeah. There's nothing. There's not a word. Fevers, sweating, spores bursting in his veins. He'd scream. Just scream. The doctors were so... The hospital lines. It was... At one point, it was a five-month wait for the emergency room. That was the estimate. You filled out a form, and back when there were forms, and I mean, if you could even get past the National Guard troops they put around the hospitals, until they all started dying, the doctors died, because they were, the hospitals became mushroom forests first. We saw the toadstools pushing through the walls of the hospital, the whole building crumbled. Everyone was so scared of the mushroom monsters, but the disease was so much worse. 
spread fast and you couldn't outrun it. You couldn't hide from it or bomb it or burn it. Just one day it was in you and then and, and it was just a clock ticking down. We saw the people die from the plague. I only ever saw the monsters on TV. It was all just so fucked up at that point. It's when we decided to leave. We packed the car and started driving. Beckett didn't even make it out of the state. His blind, purple eyes. His body had become so small. All of it was... You don't realize. You don't. Digging a grave is hard. Six feet seems so... What an arbitrary amount. I'm sure there's some reason why it's six feet, some magical thinking reason, some sort of how many feet Jesus was from something, or the Greeks, or animals, I guess, the smell, some mix between magical and practical. That's what most everything is, right? Starts for a practical reason, and then we lose touch with it, and we're like, why did we do that? And we come up with some magical reason, that God's will, the evil eye, bless this mess. We didn't measure, and we didn't really have the tools to dig. We left our shovels at home. Not that we had shovels, snow shovel, I guess. But you don't dig a grave with snow shovels. You do it with your hands and with forks, the corner of books and whatever else will help you move the earth. Ginny and I met when we both saw a production of Crap's Last Tape at Drew. Our friend Erica was doing it. She was a woman, and that normally would get the Beckett estate super angry because they don't like cross-gender casting, but I don't think she got permission to do it. It only ran two nights in a study room at the Anger Center. Anyway, she had a party post-show because college. It was Beckett-themed, the party. Come dressed as a Beckett character and drink Irish whiskey and French wine. Dress up meant putting on whatever you could scrounge up. It's always funny in movies when, like, high school or college parties have really amazing themes and everyone has these perfect costumes. <laughs> in real life for us, it was just regular clothes punctuated with construction paper or bed sheets. Maybe we're just shitty at it, lacked imagination. I, I went as lucky from Godot because, again, lack of imagination. Ginny went as Andre the Giant because Beckett had given Andre the Giant rides to school when Andre was a kid. She had a leotard thing, and it was oddly sexy. Not oddly to me. Well, to me, it was just sexy. She was, she just fit in my life like a piece I never knew was missing. I didn't know it then. I, I didn't realize what was, I'm not saying Andre the Giant isn't sexy. I'm, he seems like someone you just want to crawl into his arms and fall asleep, but Andre is no Jenny. Jenny and I had one of those talk all night things. I walked her to her dorm, and then we kept talking, so she walked me over to my dorm, and then we walked back to her dorm. I was too nervous to ask her in, and she was too smart to ask me in. Plus, her roommate was sort of weird, liked to cut people's hair while they slept, which I think she said was for an art project, but she was a poli-sci major, so I wonder what happened to her. Well, the mushroom, probably, but before that. Anyway, we just walked each other home all night and then got breakfast at the dining hall. It was odd how much she didn't need to sleep then. I don't think I could manage it now. Maybe with her again, I, we ate eggs and sausage, English muffins toasted in that weird toaster conveyor belt machine thing. I have class in like an hour, she said. She was still in her wrestling leotard. 
She got in a coat at some point, though. Wait, she must have gone back to her room. But when? Huh, I don't remember where she got the coat from, but I remember the coat. It was like this light blue London fog raincoat kind of thing that tied at the waist. Like something a sexy girl version of Sherlock Holmes would wear. Gerlock Holmes, maybe she'd be called. No, probably not. We drank a lot of coffee. That was the first time we drank coffee together. First of many. Oh, it's never really thought about that. The coffee was with us from the start. Or that was the first time. Everything was so new. I looked at her. Are you going to class dressed like that? I asked. She pulled the coat around her. This one girl always goes in pajamas, she said. She has these pajama pants with like two handprints drawn on her ass. It says, get some over the handprints. Bar is pretty low. Besides, no one cares about the fat girl in a trench coat. You're not, don't, she said. I know what I am. Don't spare my feelings. I don't cotton to that bullshit. She really said cotton. Yes, listener, I married her later, but you can see why, right? She smiled that smile and tucked a strand of her hair behind her ear. Anyway, she said, I'm more worried about passing out halfway through. Coffee won't help the hangover that's coming, I said. Ginny agreed as she poured us more coffee. Ginny then drank the whole cup in one sip, like, oh, I can't go on. I'll go on, she said, quoting Becca. She tied up the whole night, groggy but high on caffeine and each other. She quoted Beckett to me, and right then I was lost and found and lost again. I would follow her across worlds. She summed it up. I can't go on. I'll go on. The whole nonsense of our lives. I can't go on. I'll go on. She was studying Russian history and art. We bonded over our shared hatred of Constant Garnett's translation of Crime and Punishment and our affection for this painting, The Blue Bowl, which was housed in a museum in Uzbekistan. Ginny had a book from the museum that she found in a used bookstore. It was in Russian or Uzbek, but had these wonderful colored pictures. We promised we'd go one day, see the painting in person. But Uzbekistan isn't easy to get to. It's expensive and the visa process is weird. Life gets in the way, not in a bad way. Got to go to a lot of great places, some not so great places, but Uzbekistan, we all, have our Uzbekistans glittering just beyond the horizon. Later, after we got married, Ginny was working on an exhibit at the Zimmerli Museum in New Brunswick. She was juxtaposing Russian icons with Soviet Sats art. I was bringing her some dinner. I'd gotten off my shift at the bookstore and I think I picked up subs, or maybe pizza, I think I'd remember. I'm trying to remember with my hands, was I holding a pizza box or subs? It's like, yeah, I don't know. They had just started hanging the paintings. She was looking at this one. It was a parody of socialist realist paintings, but it was of Khrushchev's plot against Beria. It was very red and overdramatic, and if you get the references, pretty funny. The lights in the gallery were mostly off, but she was looking at the painting, head tilted to one side. I put the pizza or the subs down and came over to her. She'd been nervous about the show. It was her first big solo curation. Also, we'd been fighting about normal, boring stuff, doing laundry, money, feeling lost, the dishes, the meaning of life, piddly stuff. I went over to her. She went over to the pizza. So, pizza, let, let's just say pizza. I was annoyed. She seemed happier to see the pizza. We started talking about nothing. I complained about work and how the bookstore was annoying. She said I should quit, and I said it's not that easy, money or whatever. And she told me she was pregnant. I was a jerk about it. I, I brought up laundry and dishes and laundry again and money, especially money. She just said if I wanted to leave, I should leave. 
I don't know if she meant the gallery or her, all of it. I was never ready. When she asked me to move in with her, I wasn't ready, but I did. Even getting married, our wedding, it was small. Our marriage was sort of more about her mom getting sick and we didn't even believe in marriage exactly, but we thought, and then we did. So leave, she said. I didn't know what to do, but I knew I didn't want to leave. But the money, but the laundry, life growing inside. How can we do this? How can we, I can't go on, I'll go on. We sat on the floor in front of the painting and ate the pizza. Or it was subs because we split them. I'd always get two different ones and we'd each eat half. I can't go on, I'll go on. She was able to get an administrative job at a gallery in Montclair. I do freelance work. Oh, she worked so fucking hard. I stayed home with Beckett because the amount we'd have paid in childcare was probably more than I'd make in whatever dumb job I was working. Beckett was. <laughs> he was the best. I know there's nothing worse than talking about your kid. Well, maybe dreams or sex, but he was amazing. Seeing a human come together, thoughts. He'd get these words and little phrases I'm not even sure from where, but he, like he'd talk about this dinosaur, Jim, from the bad tracks. What tracks? I, I don't even know, but he was Jim from the bad tracks and he loved rice, vegetable rice. He lived in the cabinet above the sink and every night we'd have to open the cabinet door and sing the bluebird song so he could go to sleep. Ginny's family loved him so much. Even Nebby was good with him. Sometimes he'd pull off his fake leg and hop after him, waving it over his head, which was more work than you think, because those things don't just pop off. They play pirates a lot. I never took him to see my mother or dad. He was out of prison by then, I think. He'd written me a few times, but it's not that I didn't love them. It's just, maybe I should have. But when I was a kid, like five or six, I used to play with my cousins. One of them would always hit me. they just bully me. Not Bunker Kevin, other side of the family, Brendan. Brendan wasn't even bigger than me, but he would always hit me or throw toys at me, and I would just take it. I didn't want to fight. I didn't like fighting. I'd go up and complain to the grown-ups. Brendan hit me. Brendan is being mean. My dad and my uncle Ed, Brendan's dad, would just tell me, Hit him back. Hit him. Fight back. They wouldn't do anything. I didn't want to hit him. I didn't want to fight him. But they wouldn't do anything, and Brendan kept at me. So one day, I just hit him across the face. It stunned him. He just stood there. I started crying, just really ugly crying, face scrunched up, snot dripping, scream crying. I wasn't even sure why. And my dad grabs me and is like, what the hell is going on? I can't explain it, and I still can't, really. And he's just so pissed. He takes me outside the house, into the little backyard of my cousin's house, and he's like, just stay out here. I'm like, how long? He says, until you stop. I'm sick of you acting like a, such a little fat. He goes back inside. I, I don't know what to do. It's cold out. I don't have my jacket. I'm too scared to go inside. I'm just snot and tears. My face is shaking, freezing. I mean, I'm sure in my mind, it's much worse. It's probably like 67 degrees, but in my mind, it's snowdrifts and miles uphill both ways with snakes constantly biting me. But to this little kid, it was terrifying. I see them. They're inside, eating, drinking. I'm just watching. I don't even know what a faggot is, so I don't know how to stop being one, but I'm trying somehow. I watch them, my family. I'm right at the door. It's a glass sliding door. I just watch. I see my parents. My mom looks at me every so often, but my dad will pull her back toward the party. I stay out there until it's time to go. It's dark out, colder. Finally, dad comes from around the side of the house. He gives me my jacket. Then he kneels down. He puts a hand on my shoulder. I'm proud of you, he says. I don't understand why. The snot is frozen to my face. 
We drive home. I don't know. I don't know what to make of it, but he was younger then. Younger than I am now, so what did he know? I think he was trying, you know, way, his way, trying to be a good parent. I mean, I'm sure I fucked up plenty with Beckett. Lost my temper and my patience. I would get annoyed when he wanted to play chicken market for the millionth time. Beckett created this game where a chicken runs a market and you had to go to the chicken to buy things. But the chicken sometimes didn't want to sell things and you'd be like, how much is this book? And the chicken would say, my eggs, my eggs. I'd be like, but what about this book? And the chicken would just be chickening around, pecking at the ground. I'd be like, forget it, I'm leaving. And then Beckett would drop the game and get furious with me and demand that I buy the book from the chicken and I'd try to explain customer service to him. We start arguing. Why am I arguing about a chicken and a store that doesn't exist? I should be enjoying his world that he created. But it all just... God, I wish I could play that right now. I would try to buy that book a million times. I, yeah. I remember one day I brought Beckett over to Ginny's parents. Part of the reason Ginny took the job she took was so we could be near them so they could help out. I'm over their house and Nebby is there saying something, probably about how it's a waste that I never ended up doing more with my life. And, and I say, if all I ever do is be Beckett's dad, then I did all right, which, wasn't as sweet as I'm making it sound. It was more about rubbing Nebby's face and the fact that he had just broken up with, what's her name again? Kimmy? Kendra? I, I don't remember. I'm not saying it wasn't true. It's just sometimes we snipe at each other, especially me and Nebby. Though Beckett loved Nebby. Nebby made Beckett call him his favorite Uncle Nebby. Always. Favorite Uncle Nebby. It's so weird. I was hiding Beckett for so long from you, from myself. It's so weird to just say his name is free. I've been holding him so tight. I was afraid to let him out because what if I can't get him back? My memories become further and further, more and more broken. To keep him, the memories real, I have to never think about him. Remembering destroys the real memory and replaces it with that imperfect copy. He was perfect. He was, he was just becoming a person and, but I didn't know it would tear me apart to even talk about him, to even say his name, but it's good. The memories survive. We live forever in the minds and hearts of those we touch. I'm sure you're holding and holding all kinds of things. But sometimes we should keep secrets, but no, I won't judge you. I won't think you're weak or I won't put you outside. We're just both doing our bumbling best in this mushroom haunted world. Oh, ah, uh, uh, what did I write? Phony the... I was talking to Nebby. Somehow it comes to religion and faith and whatever. I don't know how it got there. We had a brisk for Beckett because Ginny's family isn't religious, but she has some sort of nagging thing in the back of her head, had traditions or she's smarter. So I usually defer to her. Also, after it all started, she started reading about traditions, about rituals, something to maybe make sense of. But anyway, with Nebby, I mentioned something about Jesus or Nebby says that during the time of Jesus, there were like a thousand guys claiming to be messiahs or miracle workers. 
He said if things went differently, they'd all be praying to Honey the circle drawer and wearing little circles around their necks. I didn't know what Nebby was talking about. Nebby gets extra smug when he knows something you don't. I was like, I'm going to learn so much about Honey the circle drawer that I'm going to something, Nebby. I don't know what, but something. I did the modern lazy man's version of research. I Googled Honey the circle drawer. Here's a tip if they ever bring back Google. Honey is spelled H-O-N-I. Yeah, I actually thought he said honey at first. I wasn't sure if it was a woman. Honey, the circle drawer, but why would an ancient Hebrew miracle worker in Roman-controlled Judea have a name that is an English word? That makes no sense. But if in the post-mushroom plague world, if a miracle worker named Honey, the circle drawer were to come by, she'd be very nice and probably fun. Let's have some circle music. Since we started with a Norse myth, let's end with a Hebrew legend. Though Honey was probably real, he could visit his grave in Israel. Maybe he still can. I'm not sure what the mushrooms did to the Holy Land. Maybe everyone put their differences aside and fought off the mushrooms together. All learned a lesson that we're not so different after all. Probably not. But maybe they figured it out. Who would have thought the European Union would have mostly worked? Or America? Or the Mighty Ducks? So if you want to impress your smug in-law or be a smug in-law, here's Honey the Circle Drawer. His big claim to fame, circle drawing, or in particular, one circle. Honey was somewhere and there was a big drop. Crops were dying, people were dying. So Honey, who at the time was already considered righteous and sort of a prophet, drew a circle on the ground. Then he stands in the middle of the circle and he goes, hey God, I'm not going to get out of this circle until you make it rain. Suddenly, it begins to drizzle. Honey is like, you call this rain? Do it right, you big schmo. So, it torrential downpours. Vicious rain. Honey crosses his arms. Come on now, let's be serious here. Enough of this putzing around. Then the rain slows, steadies into a nice normal rain. The crops come back, people are sated. It's great. But you can't really talk to God that way, so some people wanted to shun Honey, excommunicate him. But then the royal family stepped in and were like, hey, that's just Honey being Honey, relax. Since Honey had a, quote, special relationship with God, he was left to do what he does. Honey kept being Honey. Apparently there was a verse from the Torah which went something like, when God brought back the Jews after 40 years, it was like they awoke from a dream. Honey was like, what's that about? How can you be asleep for 40 years? Really bothered him because he didn't understand metaphors, I guess. People had more time to worry about things then because there was no TV or Pokemon or whatever. Later, he's walking around and he sees a farmer planting a tree, some kind of fruit tree, and Honey asks, how long does that tree take to grow fruit? The guy replies, 40 years, which is coincidental to the previous part, but that's how these stories go. Honey is like, 40 years? Why would you plant that if you won't even live to see it bear fruit? The farmer is like, um, first off, rude, but Second off, when I was born, there were fruit trees planted by my ancestors, and I enjoyed them, and now I plant them for my grandchildren. Honey was like, oh, cool, cool, cool. Then Honey got really tired and went behind some rocks and fell asleep for 40 years. When he woke up, he saw the tree the guy was planting, and it was fully grown, heavy with fruit. He asks a guy he sees standing under it, who planted that tree? The guy goes, oh, my grandfather. Then Honey asks, is the son of Honey the circle drawer still alive? By the way, Honey had kids. But the guy says, 
No, but his grandson is alive. Pony says, but get this, I'm Honey the Circle Drawer. And the guy's like, yeah, right. Then Honey goes around town, I'm Honey the Circle Drawer. No one believes him. He goes to like the school and the rabbis are arguing about a particular thing. And one of them says, well, long ago in the days of Honey the Circle Drawer, they did this. Honey interrupts and says, no, they didn't. The rabbi is like, how do you know, big man? Honey is all smug and says, because I'm Honey the Circle Drawer. I've been asleep for 40 years. Rabbis were like, no, you're not. You're some crazy Weisenheimer. Get out of here. Honey was so upset because they showed him no respect and the world had changed too much. And so he prayed, give me mercy, Lord. So God let him die. Then a rabbi goes over, sees him dead and says, ah, yes, as is the saying, either companionship or death. That's the end. Well, I soon they buried him. He does have a grave. I read that and I was like, what the fuck? I get it. I, I get the part about planting trees for the future, about giving the future, about thinking beyond yourself. But I, I don't understand why he was so hung up on that Torah part that was obviously metaphorical and then it became literal. Why did he fall asleep for 40 years to prove that a metaphorical thing can be literally true and then it's terrible because in this new future, everyone you had a personal relationship with is gone? The people who really knew you are dead? You should just die. Is that what it's saying? I mean, who is this story for? I never went back to Nebi to talk about it because I didn't understand it. Maybe I should have. Maybe, maybe Nebi understood it, but that would have just upset me more. I'm smart. I should understand it. Certain Jewish mystics said that parts of the Bible should only be studied in groups because studying it alone was too dangerous. You could get confused or lost in the text and it could damage you. Maybe Honey is best talked about in pairs. Instead, I Googled it alone. The dangers of late night Googling alone without companionship. For that, the rabbi thinks I should be better off dead. Is there a lesson in this? That story sticks with me, the way lyrics of a song or memories do. Honey, the circle drawer, the fruit tree. In my bunker now, it starts to mean more to me. The idea of a world pulled away. For him, those 40 years were like a few seconds and suddenly it's gone. His family, his friends, his community. I know what he felt now because it's me, I'm Honey. I'm the one shouting into the void. I'm Phil Etrog, the circle broadcaster. Remember me, acknowledge me. The world just shrugs. I wish I could go to sleep for 40 years instead of, instead of this. I get it. Now, I get it. Companionship or death. Community. Without a community where I understand Honey's pain. Now, for the first time, I feel like, like that story, I feel like, like was that story written for me? 2,000 years ago, they wrote this story and here I am. I happened to read up on it because of my dumb brother-in-law and now I'm Honey, except I'm not, I'm just, I'm filled. That story doesn't help, not really. It doesn't teach me anything. Honey didn't do anything, he just died. He just died because well, he outlived everyone for no reason. He didn't learn a lesson. He didn't even have that moment of, oh, that's how you sleep for 40 years. He didn't marvel at the mystery of it or the amazing thing that happened. He just died. What the fuck? I don't get it. I don't get it. Is it the wisdom of Silenus? It's best not to be born, but having been born, is it to die soon? 
Or is it saying that to outlive people is the greatest sorrow? That we think we want to live forever, but when we do, we see everyone die? That's a greater suffering than to die with everyone else? It's too extreme. It's it, Die soon. Die too late. I'm stuck in the maze. Honey on one end, Silenus on the other. But I didn't choose this. I didn't choose this. I didn't... That doesn't really matter anyway, because... Because... I saw them again today. I was hoping it wasn't... But I noticed them at first a few days ago. But they've gotten brighter, bigger, small purple flecks in my eyes, getting bigger, sparkle. I don't know how long I'll last, but I'll try. I'll keep broadcasting as long as I can.